Good morning. This morning, I, <clears throat> I made a very wise purchase of the 1% chocolate milk at Kroger's. That's a pro tip to you chocolate milk aficionados. <clears throat> it is the very best. Uh, you have to get there early on a Sunday morning because the demand is so uh, intensely high. It takes a certain level of commitment to have a regular supply of this particular style and genre of chocolate milk. But for the first time ever, I had the experience of buying uh, milk with an expiration date that falls after my 65th birthday. <clears throat> so uh, if you'll bring the image up, I'd appreciate it. I took some comfort uh, in knowing uh, that uh, even as I was having that uh, experience. Uh, uh, my beautiful wife Diana is is currently negotiating with uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London uh, to purchase this particular painting, uh, the Light of the World, for our new newly uh, to be built uh, barn dominium in Robertson County. So I'm you all are invited up to see this. He aquí yo estoy la puerta e llamó. Mr. Broussard, my Spanish teacher, made me promise in 1973 never to speak Spanish in public. So I apologize, Mr. Broussard, for that. We're talking today about Revelation uh, chapter 3, uh, Jesus' words to the church at Laodicea. We're going to focus on one of the most famous, overused, uh, misunderstood, and neglected verses uh, in the entire uh, canon of Scripture, Revelation 3.20. So this painting, um, uh, which may or may not ever make it into my barn dominium, uh, was, was quite the rage in the 19th century. Uh, the artist William uh, Holman Hunt uh, was a famous and renowned artist, and this was considered his magnum opus. Uh, he was inspired to paint this uh, oil painting of Jesus knocking at this door, which you can see is overgrown. Uh, it apparently has not been opened in some time. And you will notice there's no uh, handle on the outside of the door by which Jesus can make entrance. And he called this painting the light of the world. The light of the world. This painting was so renowned, he painted three different versions of it, which you can see all three today, and uh, one in Oxford, one in St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, one in an art gallery in Manchester. Uh, this painting actually went on a world tour uh, in 1915 to 1917, uh, and it is reputed, uh, it is reported uh, by somebody with nothing better to do than to make entries into Wikipedia that four out of every five Australians actually saw this painting uh, in 1916. When it, came, uh, when it came to Australia. Uh, he was uh, writing, I mean, he painted this painting as an act of worship and as a call uh, to the church of his day uh, to open the door to Jesus. Now, Revelation 3.20, uh, who knows it? Who could, who could recite it right now in Spanish or English? Mira, yo, yo estoy la puerta y llamo. 
Anyone want to finish? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her and eat with him or her and he or she with me. Revelation 3.20. Now, I was a young life leader for the vast majority of my life. I've, I've probably given three or four hundred evangelistic messages where I talked about Revelation 3.20. This image of Jesus standing at the door of a person's life and knocking. Now, when I, when I was giving that message, and if you've ever had the privilege uh, uh, of trying to hold the attention of anywhere between 50 and 600 uh, uh, very antsy high school age young people uh, for an evangelistic message, I can tell you it's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, and uh, I, would not, I would not endeavor to do it without a great deal of prayer uh, and fasting, but, but I would do this on a regular basis. It was the most important job anybody could ever have is to get to share the gospel of Jesus with these uh, high school friends of mine. And I would go to Revelation 3.20 because it, uh, it gave me an opportunity to hold their attention at least for a few moments with the story of the very first time uh, I was uh, able, in the course and scope of my duty as a Dallas police officer, to actually knock down a door. I wish I had more time I could tell that story, David, but I'm under a... So here's what happened. <laughs> uh, I was a generally uh, useless uh, rookie assigned to a veteran uh, a training officer. We were working this beat in Dallas that included a colorful uh, section uh, back in the day of Harry Hines Boulevard. If you know the, if you know the uh, uh, geography of Dallas, you know a little about Harry Hines Boulevard. I can tell you that back in the late 70s, it had a lot of places that were not particularly reputable. It had, uh, it had biker bars. It had what we called back in the day uh, topless bars uh, uh, before they uh, went under the masquerade title of gentlemen's clubs. It had uh, hotels and motels where you could rent the room, you know, in less than a daily rate. And we got a tip from somebody working in one of these motels that my partner knew uh, that uh, uh, some individuals who had robbed several pharmacies, these armed robbers, this gang, uh, were actually staying in this motel. And so we went to the motel to check out the tip. We, saw, we actually saw parked outside of the room the car that was associated with uh, the robberies. And we knew uh, from the reports that these individuals were heavily armed and they had stolen a lot of money and a lot of uh, drugs, uh, primarily synthetic opioids from several pharmacies in the Dallas area. And this was a very big opportunity for any uh, erstwhile aspiring crime fighter. So, so we had to do this right. So we actually uh, uh, called for backup from uh, a unit in Dallas was before there was an official SWAT team, but there were some tactical guys who did undercover narcotics work, and uh, we had to wait for them. We staked out the room, waiting for the uh, undercover uh, operatives and operators to come with all the equipment one might need uh, to execute a search warrant in this uh, rent-by-the-hour uh, motel room. Uh, and so it, was, uh, uh, it took a little while for them to get there, and uh, when they did, uh, they got out, and of course they were fully armored up. 
and uh, they had this they had this little battering ram uh, device, and uh, we started talking about what the plan was going to be. This was going to be a no knock warrant, so there would be no the first time they would know about our aspirations of coming in would be when the door theoretically was came came crashing uh, down. So this was awesome. Now, now I must say, I mean, I was young. Uh, I was looking for adventure uh, and, and everything else, and this was exactly what I had signed up for. Well, actually, I became a Dallas police officer as a result of a practical joke that went way out of control. But at this moment in time, this was what I was there for. And so when the uh, leader of the vice squad looked at me and said, would you like to be the first man in? It's like, thank you. Yes, very much so. And so... Uh, uh, we got the battering ram. Uh, this, do this motel door was not too formidable, as you can imagine, uh, at, those daily, at those hourly rates. Uh, uh, and those guys lined up, and I was right to the side. And, of course, uh, uh, they, they knocked the door down flawlessly, and I go racing in, and I won't finish the story because we really are out of time. So, uh, so this, this story, though, was an amazing opportunity to hold young people's attention but what I wanted to do, because I had been leading them through a progression of talks about Jesus over the course of a semester, I had, I had told them about starting with the general idea of who God is, uh, uh, that he's there at all. We would answer those questions about the existence of God. We'd move into a series of talks about Jesus, uh, unfolding these amazing stories about Jesus and who he is, and making the argument that God reveals himself to humanity definitively uh, in Jesus and that God demonstrates his love for humanity definitively and decisively as Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And of course, this act of love calls for a response. Bring in Revelation 3.20. Because this Jesus, this Jesus who is God himself, who has done everything that is necessary to rescue you from this terrible predicament caused by your self-absorption, your selfishness, uh, your sin that has separated and estranged you from other people and from God, this restlessness in your heart, this emptiness, the one who answers all of those questions is actually knocking right now to come into your life. Pretty good. Revelation 3.20. But what is the verse really about? My goal today is to uh, walk us through this verse in context of Jesus' words to this wayward church in Asia Minor in the end of the first century. Because if I don't mess this up, I am hoping to convince you that Revelation 3.20 is the verse you need to hear right now in every moment that is now for the rest of your life. And Revelation 3.20 is what you need to have at the front of your mind as you go through every day as long as it's called today in this broken and rebellious world uh, that God loves so much. So Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the arche of God's creation. So this is the way every one of the seven letters uh, in Revelation begins. It begins with the directive to the angel of the church, uh, <clears throat> I mean the directive to write to the angel of the church, and then Jesus dictates what the message is for the particular church. And Jesus always starts with uh, a description of the authoritative source who is bringing these words. And so Jesus says here, I am the amen. And uh, going back to the very root of this word, what he's saying essentially is what he said before. Uh, in other words, I am truth. I am the truth. And then he says, reinforces it. I am the faithful and true witness. I am one that should be listened to. And then he drives it home by saying, I am the arche of the, of the creation of God. Now, you'll see different translations of this. Uh, this word could be translated as the ruler, uh, uh, or this word could be translated as the source. Now, I don't think we have to choose here. Uh, I like the translation in the Holman uh, translation. I believe it's the Holman that says, I am the originator of the creation of God. I like that because that's the same nickname they gave Bo Diddley uh, back in 1959. So that's cool, right? <laughs> if your name's already Bo Diddley, do you really need a nickname? And Bo Diddley was so awesome that yes, he did. Uh, so um, I have not many Bo Diddley fans here, strangely enough. You people. So, um, all right. Here's how Jesus starts. I know your works. Course. I know your works. This is the resurrected Jesus. That you are neither cold nor hot. Now let's back up. Because to understand what he's getting at here, probably need to understand a little bit about Laodicea, this uh, ancient city. Uh, Laodicea was in the Lycus River Valley, part of a tri-city area, a golden triangle, as it were, back in the day. Uh, the, the neighboring cities were Colossae, which is the recipient of a, you know, an amazing and famous epistle from Paul. Uh, the other city is Hierapolis, uh, which was about six miles away from Laodicea, and Laodicea itself uh, was the wealthiest and the preeminent city of the three-city area. Uh, uh, these churches were planted by an associate of Paul's named Epaphras. When Paul had his base camp in Ephesus, he sent Epaphras into the Lycus River Valley. Uh, he did amazing evangelism by the power of the Holy Spirit, and these churches grew out of that work. Uh, Laodicea, uh, as I said, was preeminent because it was so wealthy. And it was wealthy because it was, because its location uh, made it a perfect commercial center for commerce and trade. It was a banking center. Uh, Laodicea uh, also was blessed with this, uh, to be a fashion center because uh, it was the, the home base, the source for this much sought after black wool that was all the rage uh, throughout the empire in the latter part of the first century. Uh, and Laodicea had a medical center, which was famous for various compounds with healing powers, 
uh, including uh, a particular salve or ointment that was uh, reputedly uh, able to heal people's vision. And so Laodicea had everything going for it, but Laodicea had a very big problem. Well, one big problem they knew about, which we'll talk about, and another big problem they didn't know about, which we'll talk about. The big problem everyone knew about when it came to Laodicea was they had a water problem. Now, we take water for granted uh, here. Uh, we probably shouldn't. Uh, water is still a, a, a life or death daily uh, situation for many people across the globe. Uh, but we've never thought much about water probably in our daily lives. But Laodicea, with all their wealth, uh, they didn't have a, uh, a readily available source of water. So they had an aqueduct system to bring the water in. Now, they had two possible sources of water in Laodicea within the Tri-City area. A Colossae was known for these springs, these bubbling springs with cool, refreshing water. But Colossae was a little bit too far away for an aqueduct. Hierapolis was known for their hot springs and their mineral baths. Uh, and it was within six miles, so they developed an aqueduct system to bring the water in uh, from Hierapolis to Laodicea. But you see, uh, because Laodicea was so far from the source of cold water and still pretty far from the source of hot water, the water in Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. It was kind of disgusting and lukewarm. So when Jesus breaks out this metaphor for their spiritual predicament, it rings a bell, and if you hadn't known about Laodicea's water problem, you might have missed the point. Because when we see the words cold or hot, we're, our knee-jerk reaction is think, when it comes to your spiritual life, cold is bad, hot is good. But listen to what Jesus says to them. It would be better if you were cold or hot. Pick one. But as it is, you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. In translating the Greek into Texas, he says, for that reason, I am fixing to spit you out of my mouth. So here's the deal. Cold water is awesome, right? We like cold water. It's refreshing. Uh, it tastes so good. Uh, hits the spot. Hot water is awesome. It, bring, it has healing properties. It's relaxing. Lukewarm water is useless. Jesus' point to the Laodiceans is, you're useless. You're of no use. And unless something changes, I'm going to vomit you up. Now, Jesus, uh, Jesus would give you a microaggression every once in a while if he thought you needed to hear it. Now, what was their pro real problem? Because you say, I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I have no need for anything and what, he's, what they're saying here is, we have no need for anything that we cannot provide for ourselves. That's the indictment Jesus reads. 
And what he says is, what you do not know is that you are miserable and pathetic and destitute and blind and naked. That's the indictment. They had a real lack of self-awareness. They were convinced of one reality when they existed in another. From a, from a specifically a human perspective, applying the prevailing values and norms of the Roman Empire in the latter half of the first century, they had it made. From the perspective of the God who sees everything, they were miserable, pathetic, destitute, blind, and naked. And when you're all those things and you don't even know it, that's doubly bad. The problem with the Laodiceans is they had a proud delusions of self-sufficiency based on their wealth and status and accomplishments. And they were very accomplished people. They had t-shirts in Laodicea that said, Laodicea strong. Did you know that? I guess they were togas. You have to look this up. But, but what happened uh, in 60 AD, there was a devastating earthquake that obliterated the Tri-City area. Colossae never recovered. Laodicea, because of their incredible wealth, refused any help from the Roman Empire and rebuilt themselves, and they built back better. Have you heard that before? In their arrogance, in their pride, they built back better, and they bragged about it. And Jesus says, you're miserable, you're pathetic, you're destitute, you're blind and you're naked. That is their real condition. Now, we're not created uh, to live in the unreality of proud delusions of self-sufficiency. But that is a strong human tendency. I would argue it's the default position of human beings. I would argue these words describe uh, <clears throat> many churches in our affluent culture who are completely disconnected from the reality of their spiritual poverty. So what does Jesus say? He says, I counsel you to purchase from me gold refined out of the fire in order that you may be truly wealthy and white garments in order that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be exposed and salve or medicine to anoint your eyes so that you might actually see whomever I love I rebuke and I discipline be zealous therefore and repent 
So, in spite of Jesus' harsh and condemnatory rhetoric, in spite of the vigorous indictment, he's speaking out of love. And he says, there is no hope for human beings who are lost in proud delusions of self-sufficiency. Because I have created you. I am the archae of God's creation. I am the originator of God's creation. I know what I made you for. I made you to have a humble hunger for communion. But we have to repent. And we have to repent with a sense of urgency. And we have to repent on a regular basis. Uh, Repentance in the New Testament is not a one and done thing. Now, we actually preach uh, in so many places today a gospel that's completely devoid of any element of repentance, which is a great tragedy that resulted in, you know, the kind of uh, spiritual disaster that actually characterizes much of the Western church. No question about that. But even those people who preach a gospel of repentance might tell you it's something you do once at the beginning when actually the New Testament picture of repentance, and this is throughout the prophets of the Old Testament too, is repentance is a daily requirement for anyone who wants to follow God because we stray and we sin and we move from our humble hunger for communion to proud delusions of self-sufficiency on a daily basis. And if we are not aware of that, then we have the opportunity to be miserable, and pathetic. Can you finish it now? Destitute, blind, and of course, naked. Now, most of y'all have not trained for nakedness the way I have. <clears throat> but, but the reality is here, it's no good to be naked, especially when you don't know it. It's just really going to be embarrassing. We're all naked in front of God. Who are we trying to fool? Which brings us to Revelation 3.20. I don't think I was out of line to use Revelation 3.20 as an evangelistic message, even though in the context of Revelation 3, he's addressing a wayward uh, church uh, that needs to repent. Because the message is true no matter who you are. If you said yes to Jesus in 1974, you still need to say yes to Jesus today. And every day called today, as long as it's today. And your yes to Jesus should always be accompanied by a careful, close examination of what you need to repent from. And this is a daily discipline of anyone who wants to follow God. So what does Jesus say? Behold, I stand at the door, and I am knocking. It's the present tense. Jesus is always knocking. If, the conditional, anyone hears my voice. So when you, when you wake up in the morning, you should think in terms of your agenda for the day. And before you, uh, you know, take your first uh, selfie or do your first push-up or whatever you're tempted to do first, the first thing you want to do every day is to say, Jesus, let me hear your voice today. Because that's our mission every day. Today, if you hear his voice, that should be a yes. Then if you hear his voice, 
You open the door. That's what he's asking you to do. Now, of course, the image sometimes used in Revelation 3.20 is that Jesus is just haplessly begging on your doorstep and fundamentally incapable of coming in if he wants to. We, we saw in John 20, a locked door is not a barrier to Jesus if he actually wants to come in. He can come in. But the way he deals with us as his followers is he knocks and he waits for us to say yes and thank you and come in. And when we say yes and thank you and come in, Jesus, then he says, I will come in and we will feast. Now this, this is pointing to your daily time with Jesus, described as table fellowship, as this rich communion experience, and listening and talking and being honest to God. This also refers to what we're about to do. And all of that points toward the ultimate banquet at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But every day, every day, if you have a humble hunger for communion, you will say, Jesus, I hear you, come in. And then when Jesus comes in, he says, be filled. Be filled. So, I don't know about you, but I can be... I can occupy myself with all kinds of trivial pursuits. And I can fill up a day, probably as good as anybody. And I can fill up a week. I can fill up months at a time with activity. But we all have just one job today, and every day called today. is to say, Jesus, come in and fill me. That was about seven minutes too long. I apologize. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this day. Every day called today that you're knocking. You, the one who has shown us your love on a Roman cross. You, the one who has conquered death in your resurrection. You, the one who pleads and advocates for us in the courts of heaven. You, the one who loves us more than we can ever love ourselves, and you know us better than we could ever know ourselves, and you're knocking. Jesus, may we be a people who opens the door today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.